Paul, I, I, I'm really curious. We have a sales audience. Why is storytelling relevant to a sales audience? Yeah, well, I guess the, the short answer is because it works and, and it works really well. Um, you know, we could probably spend the whole hour just talking about uh, why it works so well. But I think the, the, the primary reason is that human beings are just wired to listen to, understand, and communicate in, in story. And, um, uh, you know, I've, there's been a lot of cognitive science and research that's been done on uh, how human beings think and make decisions. And it turns out uh, that we learned something in the last couple of decades we didn't know before. And that was that most decisions get made in really the, the subconscious emotional processing parts of the brain, uh, as opposed to the very rational conscious thinking parts of the brain. And that's the opposite of what common sense would tell you, right? Common sense, well, I'm, I'm a very rational, logical thinking person. So I make all, I make very rational, logical decisions. And it, it just turns out that's not true. It turns out that most of us make subconscious, emotional, often irrational decisions in one place in our brain. And then we justify that decision rationally, logically, and consciously a few nanoseconds later in a different place in our brain. And so we leave the decision thinking, convinced that we've made it for these very rational, logical reasons. But the truth is we didn't. We, we made it unbeknownst to us, subconsciously and emotionally, and our brain is rationalizing that decision after the fact. So if you want to influence people, whether that's sales and marketing or leadership or, or just or parenting or anything, it turns out you need to be speaking to both parts of the brain because they're, they're both important. And a, a rational, logical set of facts of why you should buy something. In other words, a traditional sales pitch is only going to speak to one part of, that, of your brain. Uh, but a story can speak to both parts. And it's really one of the only tools that can speak to that other, that, that second part and do it well. So, Paul, reading your book, Sell with a Story, which is highly recommended, fantastic read, anybody listening, is you, you, you did a lot of research in, in writing that book. What was it about your research that, that spoke to you about stories? You said that the, you know, that the traditional pitch only affects one part of the brain, but stories lights up the entire brain. What is it about stories? Again, just like a pitch, it's verbal, but I, for people who are kind of tr struggling to understand why, not why stories are different, but how they work and, and why they should invest time in learning how to do this. Yeah. Give us something. Yeah. So uh, imagine that you're sitting there listening to somebody giving you a sales pitch, uh, the, a traditional sales pitch, you know, like, Hey Paul, here are the three reasons why you should buy my product. One, two, three. It, it's a very rational, logical process. And so what your brain is doing is analyzing all those propositions. You're critically analyzing, looking for holes in them, holes in that argument, looking for reasons to say no. Like, well, I understand your reason number one and three, but number two doesn't work for me at all. And here are the reasons why. And that's fine. You need to have those kind of conversations with people. But when you're telling them a story, your brain is not critically analyzing each part of the story. What your brain is doing is watching the movie. So you know, you've, you've heard people refer to this as you, you see this in your mind's eye, right? So, mm. so when somebody is telling you a story, what you're doing is watching the movie of the story as it plays out in your mind's eye, as if you're almost as if you're watching a movie on a screen. You can see in your mind's eye the characters 
doing what they're doing and running into trouble and getting out of trouble and getting embarrassed and falling on their face and, ha and having success. And, you know, you, you see all that you, and you, you're, you're hearing the dialogue and the, the human relationships, you're watching it happen. There's nothing to watch on your mind's movie maker when somebody is giving you rational, logical reasons and facts and data. There's just, there's no movie. So stories create this visual movie in your brain for people to watch. And it just, it, it makes it a visual, even though you think of storytelling as an, a verbal art, it is really just as much a visual art because it creates the vision in your brain. That's, that's I guess, the, the big difference. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I guess there's, there's certain emotions that come attached to the visual element as well. It was funny because I was watching a guy on, uh, it was a talent show we have over here called The Voice. And he was a, he was a guy who had a, quite a bad stammer when he spoke, but when he sang, stammer went away right and he right. explained it said because he was singing in story singing using metaphors using visual language but it, it was a different part of his brain and yeah. it was quite interesting to see that but so come back to the the stories for a moment again thinking about a sales audience who might be listening to this going look i i understand storytelling in the context of meeting my best friend in a pub for a beer mm -hmm. And we catch up and we share stories. And I understand stories when I go to the movies and I watch a 90-minute story. But when I'm in well, front why do I need of sales? and I've got a short amount of time and yeah. I, I, can't, I can't tell him a kind of a back-slapping story. Uh, he doesn't have time for a long one. How, how does a story play out in a sales yeah. context? Maybe give us an example. Yeah, yeah. Great, great, great question. So first of all, um, I think sometimes when people think about I, having to tell a story, they're thinking about this 15 or 20 minute long ordeal. And it's not that way. The average sales story is two minutes long, okay? two minutes, 120 seconds. Okay. They're very short. It's not this long, oh, I don't have time for that. Well, you've got a 30 minute sales pitch or a one hour presentation or, you know, you, you've got time for a two minute story probably. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, secondly, uh, and I probably just need to explain where I came up with some of this, um, what I found is that stories are really being used throughout the entire sales process. And I, and I, I did this in the process of researching the book. You'd, you'd asked about that early and I probably didn't answer it, but um, so, so here it is. I ended up, first of all, I, I read most of the other books I could find on storytelling the sales business, including yours, which was fabulous. And I think everybody should get it. It was my, my favorite book that I read in the, the genre. I think I might like mine a little bit more, but other than that, <laughs> I like yours the best, right? Um, I'll take that. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, but what I, uh, the next part of the research that I did was interviewing professional salespeople and professional buyers themselves. So I literally interviewed sa uh, sales and procurement managers at over 50 companies around the world. And, um, and I interviewed salespeople for the obvious reason. If I'm going to write a book on sales and storytelling, I need to interview salespeople. I, I interviewed buyers, I, I'll admit, originally on a bit of a lark. I thought, well, you know, let me interview a few buyers as well. But as I got into it, I realized pretty quickly that I was learning more from the buyers than I was the salespeople. And, and I, in hindsight, it, it seems obvious, but I mean, who better to tell you which type of sales stories work and which ones don't than professional buyers who do nothing all day long but listen to salespeople tell their stories and decide who to buy from and who to send home disappointed, right? So doing all, doing all these these one-on-one -on -one interviews with these professional salespeople and buyers, what I learned was that great salespeople are using storytelling 
throughout the entire sales process. I expected it just in a couple of places, like when you're building rapport with a new prospect and getting to know them and letting them get to know you. And then during the sales pitch itself, I expected to you know, hear a couple of stories, but that's not at all what I found. What I found was people telling stories from the moment they met the, the prospect the first time, like introducing themselves to the prospect, to preparing for the sales call all by themselves, to yes, building rapport with uh, the prospect, to making the sales pitch itself, to handling objections, to closing the sale, actually using stories to help close the sale. Like I just didn't expect to see that. And then stories that they would tell even after the sales made, like managing ongoing customer relationships. And throughout that, and I think you'd find that's a pretty typical sales process, right? Those five or six or seven parts. During each of those, there's three or four types of stories that I found consistently being told by great salespeople. So you, you add them up. And so I, so I interviewed these, these people and I, I probably had um, six or 700 sales stories that I documented over the course of doing the research for this book. And all of them fit into one of about 25 different specific types of stories that each fit into one of these seven parts of the sales process. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm now convinced that storytelling is actually a much broader, uh, more productive tool than just to be used very narrowly during the sales pitch or during the building rapport. Um, so, so a, it's not a short, it's not a long thing. It's, these are literally two minute stories and they range from about 30 seconds up to about three or four minutes, but the average is about two minutes long and they happen throughout the sales process. So it's not just, Oh, when I go get my sales pitch, I need to tell one story. You might tell five stories in the course of an hour and you might tell two stories on your first phone call when you're just meeting them and, or your your first phone call and you might tell one or two stories the day you met them at the conference and you might tell, you know, three other stories in the follow-up phone calls while you're trying to close the sale. And then you might tell them one story a month, you know, every month after that to help them become a loyal, you know, customer. So the stories are told frequently throughout the sales process and not uh, just during the sales pitch. Was there anything you saw in your research, Paul, uh, that led you to feel there was a certain type? You know, you said there's 25 different types, but within that third-party stories, versus first party, third party being a, a client of ours had mm-hmm. this issue, this is what they looked at, here's some of the options they considered, here's what they did and here's the results they got versus a first party story, here's what I did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See any consistency there? Yeah, so of the 25, probably 16 or 17 of them are stories about customers, about either cl- other customers that you have uh, or prospects that you had and, and never landed, uh, but they're, they're about uh, other people. Um, a, a few of the stories are about you and your company. So for example, when you introduce yourself to somebody, you need to tell a story about yourself to help them get to know you, you know, and stories about what, why I do what I do for a living and, and what I do for a living and how I can help you. Here, here's a story about how I helped, you know, one of my other clients or something. Um, you know, so there are going to be some stories about you, uh, the story about the founding of your company, uh, the story about the invention of the brand or the service that you're selling. Th- those are stories about you and your company. But most of the stories are about clients. They're customer success stories. They're, they're problem stories about problems your clients have had and how your product or service solved that, uh, you know, that, that problem for them. Uh, uh, stories to create a sense of urgency uh, for them to buy now. So you can tell them a story about one other client who waited to buy and regretted it, you know, 
So yeah, most of them, two thirds or more of these stories will be about other people and about other customers and, and clients of yours. So what advice then would you have for people who are thinking, this sounds great, Paul, where do I find stories? And, and more importantly, because I th think you've touched on that already, you know, client stories are a big part of it. How do I know which story to choose in a given situation? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, two questions in there. How do I know, where do I find these stories and, and how do I choose which story to tell? So uh, let, me, let me answer those in reverse. How do you choose which story to tell? So you got to start with what is your objective in telling the story, right? I mean, these are not entertainment stories. These are stories you're telling for a purpose. And so is your purpose at this moment in the, in the sales call, for example, to close the sale? Is your purpose just to introduce yourself? Is your purpose to get them to let you have your first meeting with them? Uh, is your purpose to get them to think that your company is the most awesome thing since sliced bread? You know, what is your goal in, in telling this particular story? And, and, and the way I articulate it in the book is, what do you want your audience to think or feel or do? as a result of hearing your story. And so until you can answer that question, you can't pick which story to tell. How could you possibly pick the right story to tell? And, and it frustrates me to no end. I, I literally, every week I get an email or a phone call from somebody somewhere saying, hey, I've got this uh, big presentation coming up next week. You got any good stories I can tell? And I'm like, well, how could I possibly, I don't know what you're talking about, who your audience is, what your goal is. How could I possibly suggest a good story? Like it doesn't work that way. So start with the end in mind. What do you want your audience to think, feel, or do? And then second, think of a relevant success or failure or moment of clarity around that thing that you wanted your audience to do, that, that your main message. And so what that means is think of a time when you've seen somebody do that really well or do it really poorly, that's the failure story, or the moment you learned that lesson yourself the first time. Like whatever it is you're trying to convince them of in that moment, at some point in your career, you realize that's an important thing for somebody to think, feel, or do. And tell them the story about that moment for you. Because if it was so compelling when you realized it, it'll probably be compelling when they realize it. So those are the three most productive places to look for a story. Is a success, a failure, or a moment of clarity around the objective. And that, so that's the order of it. Figure out what your goal is first. Then think of a success, failure, a moment of clarity. And you may end up, uh, and ask yourself that first. <clears throat> but you can also ask other people like you, you ought not just be assuming that every story I'm going to tell I need to come up with out of my own head. It has to be part of my life experience. No, you should be letting your colleagues and your boss and your subordinates and your best clients know what kind of stories you're looking for. And people love to share their stories. If they knew that you were looking for a story about ABC, once they come across it, they'll tell you. And now you've got that story to put in your repertoire, having your bag ready to tell at a moment's notice sounds to me like it does require a lot of situational fluency that you have to have a strong presence of mind that you can't be thinking about what question i'm going to ask next you have to be in the moment listening really carefully and that at some level what you're hearing has to resonate with you so that you're able to then select the appropriate story for that situation yeah, well, I would say yes and no. Yes, because in a conversation, uh, conversations are fluid. There'll be topics that come up that you didn't plan on. You might get asked a question you didn't plan on. And yes, it, it's very effective to have a huge repertoire of stories that you can draw on at a moment's notice when the time is right. So yes to that. The no is that you should plan these stories 
as part of the discussion, the same way you plan the rest of your sales pitch, talking points, bullet points, you know, whatever. Um, when you go into a meeting, you probably have a list of seven or eight things you want to say. One or two of those ought to be stories. So that's planned out in advance. And so you ought to know, you should know the story, you should kind of rehearse it. And, you know, just like you're going to rehearse the rest of your presentation. So I think, it, I think stories are used in both ways, intentionally and planned in advance and in an extemporaneous manner, just like any other form of conversation. Makes sense. Paul, I'd like to talk to you about story structure and then delivery. Uh, let's talk about story structure first. If I'm thinking consciously about stories that, I want, that I'm planning, as, as you mentioned, talk to me a little bit about how they should be structured. Yeah. So I, there, there are, yeah, so there are a lot of different story structures you can, you know, people will advocate from, from very short ones to very long and in-depth ones. In fact, the one, the one I'm asked about the most is um, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey story structure, which uh, most people are familiar with. He, he wrote the, the book, Man of a Thousand Faces, I think. But anyway, it's this, the Hero's Journey story structure is this very long 17-step, you know, process. And it's just, yeah, I can see your face shaking. It's, it's just way too involved for somebody trying to tell a two minute sales story. So I have to talk people away off of, you know, if you're writing a screenplay or a novel or something, knock yourself out with that. But um, what I advocate is really a, a more simple four step context challenge, conflict and resolution. Um, and, you know, before that, you kind of need a hook to get into it. And, and after you're done telling it, yes, you probably should have a, a lesson that you want them to learn that you make clear or an action or an ask that you have afterwards. But the story itself is really just, just four parts, I, I think. And, and the, the easier way I find to teach people <clears throat> those parts is to teach them, instead of memorizing those parts, is to have them remember the questions that your story needs to answer and the order it needs to answer them in. And I think that's just easier for people to, to wrap their minds around. And I think there are only eight questions that your story needs to answer. And, and, and here they are, and this is, I think, the order you need to answer them. First of all, why should I listen to this story? Right? That's the first question you got to answer because if you don't answer that, they might not listen to your story. Right? Emotionally, mentally, or physically walk away. Um, but then you get into the main questions that are probably make sense to you. Right? Where and when did it happen? Who's the main character and what did they want? Uh, what was the problem or opportunity that they ran into? Uh, what did they do about it? And how did it turn out in the end? So that's questions two through six. Right? And that's, I think, just the logical pros progression of a story in most people's minds. Right? Where and when, who's the main character, what did they want, what was the problem or opportunity they ran into, what did they do about it, and how did it turn out in the end? And then when you're done, yes, you, you might want to answer the question about what did you learn from that and what do you think I should do now? But if you answer those eight questions in that order, you're, I think you're guaranteed to have at least a, a story that makes sense to people, that isn't confusing, that doesn't leave things out, and, um, and it gets them to listen to it. And I'll, I'll just give you one example of why you need to answer all those questions in that order. So if I were to tell you a story and I didn't answer question number two, which is where and when it happened, here's what happens, right? So if I were to tell you a story about something that happened three years ago in, in the summer um, in, in Cincinnati, Ohio with my wife, uh, you would naturally assume that it was a true story, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm telling, I'm giving you a, the details of exactly where and when it happened, okay? Now, if I were to tell you a story and I started once upon a time in a land far away, you naturally assume, right, that it's a made-up story, right? It's fiction, right? Mm. But what if I don't tell you either of those things? If I, if I say neither of those, and I'm just telling you about something that happened, you're not really sure if it's true or not. And that, that question nags at people 
So while I'm in the middle of my story telling it to you, what's nagging you in the back of your brain is, did this really happen? Ah, oh, come on, Paul. This sounds too fantastic to be. Come on, where where did this happen? When was this? I mean, you, you people will literally. The more fantastic the story is, the less they believe it, and and they will literally. And I've seen this happen a dozen times. They will interrupt you and ask you, "Where did this happen? When was this?" And what they're really asking is, "Is this bullshit or did this really happen?" Mm. Right? But they don't want to ask you if it's true because that would just be insulting. So what they ask you instead is. Where did it happen? When did it happen? That's the, the question that tells people if it's really true, what they're listening to. So if you skip that, you're damaging the rest of the story because they're not listening to you because they're too still worried about is it true or not. It's funny you so, say that because I, I remember uh, telling a story once in a classroom and, and, and I gave the name of the, the, the couple of the characters in the story. There were two guys. It was an opportunity I was working on years ago in Norway. And I mentioned this guy, Jan Choi and Torsten. And, and so I'm telling the story. I'm halfway through the story. And it's about three, four, five minute story. And somebody at the back of the class looked these two guys up on LinkedIn and say, <laughs> he's the two guys. So, yeah. so there was obviously some doubt. But when they did that, then it gave the story huge credibility. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. Yeah. So now, now talk to me then a little bit about delivery because we've all listened to people tell stories and you can be left feeling, what was the point of that? Where were they going? That's one. And then the other one is, would you, for heaven's sake, please hurry up. You know, I got yeah. it already. So yeah. What, what, and, I, and I think that's maybe a fear that holds people back because when we hear other people who don't naturally or, or don't know how to tell a story, because I think at this stage now, people are, are, should be getting a, a good sense that there is a real skill in this. Um, <clears throat> that when we, we, we're, I guess, exposed to bad storytellers, maybe it gives us a sense of fear that, oh, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that guy. So give them some advice on how to make sure that when I tell my story, that Every second counts. Right. Yeah. Well, so first of all, re remember the number, two minutes. I mean, you really are shooting for a two-minute story or less. You're not shooting for a five or 10 or 15-minute story. And that's hard for people. Back when I teach uh, you know, classes uh, to groups of sales folks on telling stories for sales, and I have them stand up and tell stories, and I time them, and then I ask them afterwards, and, and I've told them, your, your goal is two minutes. And I ask them afterwards, how long do you think that was? They say, ah, maybe I was a little long, three or four or five minutes. I've literally had somebody stand up and tell a story and thinking that it was five minutes. And I said, okay, it might surprise you, but you, you've been talking for 17 minutes, wow. 17 minutes. But it, so, so first of all, you really, it does need to be short. Um, and, and you can do that just by just kind of counting the words. I mean, you, you know, it, people speak at about 150 words a minute. So a two minute story is literally 300 words. So as you're kind of crafting out your stories, that's what you ought to be shooting for. Um, but the other thing is <clears throat> the, the, the structure I just told you actually will help you keep the story short. So if you're saying something in the story that doesn't answer one of those eight questions, you probably don't need it, right? Yeah. It, you know, answer those eight questions in that order and you'll have a short story. It's when you get to going, you're, you become long-winded when you're straying from those um, from those questions. In fact, let, let me just give you an example, and then we can use that to, to talk about and, and diagnose. Uh, one, one of my favorite examples is actually one that ha has happened to me myself. Um, so my wife and I were in um, uh, Coney Island in Cincinnati at an art fair. My wife was looking for a 
uh, a picture for our son's bathroom at home. And so we're going booth to booth to booth. And we get to this one booth of this underwater photographer, a guy named Chris Good. And he just uh, has these mesmerizing photographs of underwater sea life and anemones and whales and turtles and all this stuff. And she's flipping through his pictures and just becomes emotionally attached to this one picture um, that to me just looked about as out of place as a, a pig in the ocean. And the reason is because it literally was a picture of a pig <laughs> swimming in the ocean. And I just thought that's the craziest thing. Like pigs don't live in the ocean. They're not sea dwelling creatures. So I finally, the guy came over and I got a chance to ask him, you know, what's with the pig in the ocean? And he said, and that by the way, uh, is when the magic started, right? He said, oh yeah, it was the craziest thing. He said, that picture was taken off the coast of this uninhabited island in the Bahamas called Big Major K. And he said, apparently what happened was a few years earlier, some local entrepreneur decided to raise a pig farm for, for bacon, I guess. And he, uh, he found that they had, there was this uninhabited island where he could keep the pigs on for free. So of course he throws them out there for free. Well, he says, but if look in the picture, look up there behind the pig up on the beach and what do you see? And I looked and I squinted and I said, the only thing up there I recognize are cactus. And he said, yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> Pigs don't like cactus. <laughs> Literally, there was nothing for them to eat on the island. The entrepreneur just hadn't thought very far ahead about this. Well, fortunately for the pigs, apparently a local restaurant owner on a neighboring island every night started boating his kitchen refuse over to Big Major Cay and dumping it a few dozen yards offshore. So pretty soon these pigs get hungry enough, they smell this food that's a couple dozen yards offshore floating in the ocean. And even though they don't typically swim, you know, you get hungry enough, you'll do anything. So one little pig swims out and gets the food and then two little pigs and then three little pigs. And, you know, here it's four generations later and all the pigs on Big Major K can swim. And so they do. So he said, so I literally, I, you know, I, I, I boated up to this island and I didn't have to get out of the boat. I didn't have to get my, my swimsuit on, my, my, my scuba suit on or anything. I literally, the pig swam right up to the boat. All I had to do was lean over the edge of the boat with my camera. Boom, got a picture. The easiest wow. picture I ever took. So, of course, at that point, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, right? Sold, sold for, sold for cash. And, and ask yourself why. Why was I so willing to buy that picture two minutes after, you know, him telling me the story, whereas two minutes before, I had no interest in that, that picture whatsoever. It's just a stupid picture of a pig in the ocean. And the reason is because he told me a story. You know, it was a fascinating story, I thought. It was a combination of a history lesson, an animal psychology lesson, a geography lesson, kind of all rolled into one. And I like telling the story. And if you come to my house and go to the bathroom, I'm going to tell you the story again because you're going to see the picture of the pig because it's up there, you know. And, and all the other pictures at that art fair were just pictures. But this one had a story with it. So I was buying the story as much as I was buying the picture, right? So that's an example of a sales story. He didn't even mean it. He didn't even intend it to be a sales story. It was just a story, he told me, but it had the effect of selling me that piece of art. You know, so there that was, you know, just the story about him and the pig was a two-minute story, maybe less, um, and, and it answered all the eight questions in that order. It was interesting. It was emotional. It was surprising. You know, it had all the elements of a great story, and it made me, it, it literally made the thing I was buying more valuable, right? Make so that's an example. Yeah, great example. So uh, there's an example of a story that moved you to take action. Uh, what I've seen some stories as well is, uh, and like that one, unintended, that, th where they can change, they can actually change attitudes, change the way people think. Uh, an a, a case in point, me one time was uh, during a class, it was lunchtime, sat around tables with some of the, the reps from the class and we got talking about motorbikes and I had mentioned that I, I'd bought a motorbike. It was my midlife crisis bike. Mm -hmm. And 
Now I know where the story in your book that's came from. Where it, yeah, that's, where, <laughs> that's where it all came from. Yeah. But, you know, I, 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 I was talking about, you know, on a Harley Davidson, the, the only way to ride a Harley Davidson is T-shirt, jeans, pair of trainers, you know, 80 degrees, beautiful weather. And that, that was, you know, and I was almost that I resented the fact I had to put a helmet on or, or put a jacket yeah. on. And this guy was in the, around the table listening to me and he said, uh, it's interesting you should say that. He said, he said a, a summer job, he was a German guy, a summer job he had, he was working on a tow truck. And a tow truck would often get called out to road traffic accidents. Mm-hmm. And you know, they were typically there, you know, after, you know, the, the people in the accident had been taken away in the ambulance and they were just there to take the, 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 the crashed cars away. He said the ones he hated, hated, hated getting called out to were motorbike accidents. Mm. He said, because when you'd arrive, he said, you could hear the screams from, you know, a hundred yards away. He said that what would happen is somebody would come off a motorbike and if they weren't wearing protective gear, just, just wearing denims, they'd skid along the ground yeah. and the friction heat would burn the denims into their flesh. And then when the paramedics would come along and they were trying to get their jeans off, they were pulling lumps of flesh away yeah. from the, the, the victim. And he says, that was the scream, he says, that still lives with him. And, and when he told that story, I came away going, you know what? I am never riding a bike again without yeah. protective gear. And up to that point, you could have said to me, and in fact, it had been said to me, you know, Paul, you really should wear protective gear. You know, and, and again, like you said earlier about the sales pitch, that made sense at a logical level, but it didn't impact me emotionally. It was when right. I heard that story, that was when my attitude changed. Yeah, And exactly. of course, then because of my attitude, my behavior changed. Right, right. That's the power of story. It sure is, sure is. Tell me then, so from your perspective, your research and, and the, all the classes you've done and stories you've heard, what are some of the common mistakes you see in storytelling? Yeah, so I think one of the, the most common ones is, is uh, how people introduce their stories. Um, and uh, and you, you've seen these, these happen. Um, but I, people oftentimes will apologize or ask permission to tell a story. Uh, and I, I think that's just an awful way to, to start your story. I mean, you know, imagine you're in a conference room and seven or eight people sitting around having a discussion and one of them raises their hand and says, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, uh, can I just tell a quick story? I, I promise it'll just take a minute. Mm. What do you think that communicates to the rest of the audience about how important they think the story is? Yep. Yeah, not very, right? <clears throat> I, I mean, sure. you know, if it was important, you wouldn't be apologizing no, for it. I'm cringing no, just let, listening to that. Right, exactly. I mean, leaders don't ask permission to lead. Right? They just lead, right? Salespeople don't ask permission to do their job, right? Just do your job. So don't apologize or ask permission to tell a story. That's, that's one set of big mistakes. <clears throat> but I also, I, 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 some people go further than that. They, not only do they apologize and ask permission, but they even announce that I'm going to tell you a story. I mean, I, I, I think you know, saying, let me tell you a story is actually one of the worst ways to start telling a story. You've just told your audience, I'm going to tell you a story. And I think you asked earlier, you know, can you just get to the point? I mean, which is a, a typical reaction that people have when somebody's telling too long of a story. <clears throat> and I think that's typically what inexperienced storytellers do. They tell really, really long 
boring stories. And so most people have in their brain an association between hearing a story and hearing a long, boring story, right? The, the short, exciting, interesting stories, people don't even think of as a story. Oh, that wasn't a story. He just told me about something that happened. But when I hear the word story, I think of this big, grand production, a movie, a book, this big, long, you know, tomb. And, <clears throat> and, and that doesn't work well in a one-on-one, you know, office situation. So announcing that you're going to tell a story just makes people roll their eyes. I mean, imagine, imagine that you and I are in a meeting and the boss comes in and the boss kicks off the meeting and says, well, uh, let's go ahead and get this meeting started. And, um, well, I thought I'd get it kicked off by telling you a story. I mean, you're, you're cringing and your eyes are rolling in the back of your head already, right? But what if instead that person said, well, let's go ahead and get this meeting started. And um, some of you may have noticed uh, something really important happened last week. And it's, um, it's totally changed the way I think about running this department. I thought I'd tell you about that. Now who wants to hear what they've got to say? Everybody, right? But in both cases, they're going to tell you the same story. But when you tell people you're going to tell them a story, it's it's like you're you're treating them like a bunch of kindergartners. All right, boys and girls, it's story time. Gather around. I mean, we're grownups. We don't need that. So just so don't don't apologize, don't ask permission, and don't even tell anybody you're about to tell them a story. Just tell them the story. Love it. Makes perfect sense. So. Another th- question I have for you is around the stories themselves. Do they have to be technically true? Mm. If not, then what are the kind of things you see people change in their stories? Or, or I guess another way of asking is what's okay to change and what's not okay to change? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, so first of all, re- recognize that when you're telling stories, um, every time you tell a story, it's going to come out a little bit different. Right? Unless you're reading a script, right? And that's just human nature. And then after you've told a story, you know, and even personal stories about your life, you know, several times and over months and years, you forget certain parts and your brain does this amazing thing. Your brain will insert details <laughs> to make the story make sense, even if they weren't true at the time. But it, and, and in hindsight, the truth is you probably don't remember which parts are true and which parts weren't. But the gist of the story is still true. I mean, you, you generally, your brain doesn't generally make up you know, really important parts of the story that are untrue. It's just the fine details that get lost and your brain kind of fills in those details. And that's fine. I mean, people expect that. Everybody knows that happens. But if you're changing parts of the story on purpose that are um, significant to the story, then I, th- then I think you're crossing the line into, well, now you're just making something up. And I think it's totally okay to make up a story as long as your audience knows you made it up. Right. The problem is when you make an, you're making up a story and your audience thinks it's true. Well, well now you're just a liar. Right. You, you know, that's not good for anybody. So I, I think the basically here's my test. Imagine you're, you've just told a story to a group of people and you realize afterwards that one of the people in your audience was actually there when that story happened the first time. So they saw it just like you did. Then ask yourself this, these two questions. Are you embarrassed at how you told the story or do you think they're offended by how you told the story? And if the answer is yes to either of those questions, you change too much, right? If the answer is no to both of those questions, then obviously it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. So does it matter if there are three people in the room or four people for the story that you told? Or does it matter if it was a Wednesday or a Thursday or if it was nine o'clock at night or nine o'clock in the morning? Probably not. I mean, it's probably not that important. It doesn't matter. But does it matter if the hero won or lost? Yeah, 
Does it matter the lesson that was learned? Yeah, that matters. Uh, you know, so the, the most important parts of the story that affect the lesson don't change that. Yeah. Um, but the minor details, nobody cares about. Nobody's going to remember and nobody's going to fault you if you get them wrong. And don't worry about, don't worry about them, right? You're not writing an, uh, a, a newspaper article where all the details are important. You're telling a story and the tiny details really just don't matter that much. Yeah. I, I remember the story I used to tell a lot, uh, still tell occasionally, but I found, and it was only a small detail, but I found I actually had to change it. It was a, a story where I was in, in New York and I was heading from New York Hotel to, via Penn Station by train from New York to Baltimore. And I was with my wife and our hotel was maybe five minutes walk from Penn Station. So I, I, I like to take pictures and I had my camera gear and a tripod with me. And as you come around, I, I think it's 7th Avenue in New York, just there at Penn Station. And you look up. And, and, and the, the, the scene was just an incredible sight. There, the, there was this big harvest yellow moon down one end of the avenue. <clears throat> and, and over my shoulder, 180 degrees away, the sun was coming up. And if, if you're familiar with New York and those high-rise buildings, the way they reflect the light, this mm -hmm. was just, it was an incredible scene. And, and I said to my wife, I said, listen, I have to take this picture. So I began to, to set up my camera and she starts giving out to me saying, listen, we're going to be late for our train. You know, forget the picture. We, we don't want to be late. So I'm caught in this dilemma, you know, marriage picture, marriage picture. Which one do I go with? <laughs> so I had this idea. I said, I'll tell you what, look, I'll just put you in line and, and, and I'll come back. Once he's in, the, in, in line for the, for, the, for, the, for the train, I'm fine. So we did that and I came back. So going there, coming back was maybe a round trip of four minutes. But when I came back, the light had changed. The moon had come up higher. It was brighter. The sun had mm. come up. The reflections were different and, and the scene was gone. And I used to tell that story about seizing the moment, that mm -hmm. if you wait, sometimes the moment disappears and you can't get it back. But I found there was a little detail in it that I had to change. You see, the, the thing is, that was the story I changed too. The thing was, and again, I've, and I've asked people, you know, what element of that story is not true? Mm -hmm. and, and, and they can never tell me. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, it wasn't my wife. It was my secretary who was with me. But mm -hmm. I found when I said, you know, we were coming from our hotel. We were walking uh, towards Pets. Now fishy. that became the story. And people were, were, were wondering. You could, I could see it in their eyes going, or, or maybe it was my head trash. Yeah. But it was getting in the way. And, 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 and I needed to be out of the way. Yeah. And, and not, not be an yeah. element. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Uh, and so let's just apply the two uh, test questions that I said. So if you told that story in front of your wife, would she be offended that you put her in it instead of your secretary? Or if you told that story in front of your, and your secretary was in the room and you told that story, would she be offended that you took her out of the story and put your wife into it? No, I think they'd understand why. Yeah, exactly. And if if you no looked up and noticed uh, that one of those two people was in the room after you told that story, would you be embarrassed that you'd switch them out? No. Okay. Then I think you're fine. And I think you're fine for exactly the right reasons because it, it, it would be distracting to the story. It didn't change the lesson at all to replace the person. It removed a distraction to the lesson. Hmm. So no, I think that's a, a, a yeah. perfect I think it was example. technically true. Sorry, it wasn't technically true, but the truth was the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So then, uh, last one, and I'm conscious we're up against time, Paul, uh, was around the role of the storyteller. And it's something I see a lot 
when particularly marketers, and I, I'm not trying to beat up on marketers, but when they put case studies on their website, the, the, the mistake I, I feel, and I just wanted to get your opinion on it, was that they often cast themselves as the role of the hero, is that you know, our prospect, our customer had this problem, and then we came in on our white steeds and our shining suits of armor, and we rescued them. Mm-hmm. And then in doing so, I think they uh, unnecessarily cast their their customer into the role of a bit part player. And I'm wondering if A, you see that and agree with it, and B, if so, what advice would you have for them? How, how could they change it and still benefit from storytelling? Yeah, so great questions. Yes, I see that all the time. And I think some of it is is appropriate to do that way. But like you, I, I agree. I think that's well, you've described it well, that casts the customer into a bit part in the story. I think those same stories can be, rewritten such that the hero is not the product or the service that you're selling, but the hero is the customer, the buyer. So uh, in fact, uh, uh, a lot of branded companies have done this in their, <clears throat> in their uh, television ads a lot, and it's much more effective. So for example, uh, bounty paper towels, <clears throat> just to use a, a, a pedestrian example, it used to be that in those 30 second television commercials, you know, something would get spilled in the kitchen and the bounty paper towel would come in and save the day. The bounty paper towel was the hero. Now you watch those ads, you'll notice they're very different. Mom is the hero. The kid spills their Kool-Aid and all over their crayon book and they're crying and they can't, you know, they're, so they're no longer having fun. And instead of the paper towel swooping in and saving the day, mom swoops in and saves the day. And she was using a paper towel to do it. I love it. But the paper towel is the bit part and the hero is the mom, but the consumer get the, 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 the brand gets the credit because the mom is the one who's going to buy the paper towel at the grocery store. She wants to be the hero. She wants the tool to help her be the hero. She doesn't want the product to be the hero. So I think that's a much more effective way to tell the exact same story, but just slightly differently so that the, the customer becomes the hero instead of the product. You know, Paul, when you're enjoying yourself, time flies and time has just flown. We are up against the buffer on time. I want to thank you so much. Your insights have just been extraordinary. I, I really value them. And I think our listeners, uh, I, I, you know, putting these in, into practice, it will make an immediate and sustainable, long-lasting impact on their sales. There's no question about it. So, so thank you for sharing those with us. Where can people get in contact with you, Paul, if they want to uh, reach you? Yeah, thanks for asking. So my, my website's probably the best way. It has all my books and training um, uh, materials and information, which is leadwithastory.com. Excellent. So for people listening, we've put that in the description field uh, below in, 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 your, uh, in, in your podcast. And that's where you click on that. And you can, Paul, you're on LinkedIn, I guess, as well. People can connect with yep. you there. Yep, certainly. Yeah, I'm uh, SmithPA9 on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter. So. Paul, you're a star. Thank you very much.